0: Welcome oh, to No Challenges in I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined this week by The Daily Mail's Mike Dixon, who is the author of the new book, Emerald Kanu, When Tennis Came Home, available in stores, certainly in the UK, I'm guessing available online elsewhere. Mike, thank you for uh, being on here, congrats on this uh, this book coming out.
1: Uh, well, thank you very much, yeah, nice to see you over in uh, in England as the excitement builds towards Wimbledon, yeah. Uh,
0: you're Yeah, we're right near Wimbledon at your place here, uh, what was the sort of genesis of this book? How did this idea get planted that an Emirati kind of book uh, could be written at this moment?
1: Uh, well, well, obviously, you know, there's was, there was a, a massive amount of, of interest in the story. I, I was actually approached by uh, publishers I've worked with before. I've actually done a couple of books on cricket, in fact, um, uh, prior to this. And uh, they came to me with the idea and said, you know, we'd like to find someone to do the book. Uh, and they rightly or wrongly thought I was... <laughs> reasonably well qualified to do it um, so yeah that 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 was how it, it came about and what I've tried to do really is obviously that the main story about this incredible once in a lifetime uh, event that's you know I mean unprecedented in any kind of modern sport but uh, I've also I thought to tell that properly you also you had to have kind of the lead in stuff and a bit about where Emma sprang sprung from. Um, you know and the journey she took sort of through actually it's very rarely gets written about the kind of lower levels of tennis like the lower levels of the professional game of the junior circuit so I, I actually found that researching that really quite interesting it opened my eyes to a few things you know and how I think a lot of people in the UK anyway thought she'd sort of come from absolutely nowhere she just you know this school girl had done her A-levels and then yeah. kind of because, yeah, that's the nature of interest with some people in tennis. But obviously, we would know that uh, that can't happen. Um, so it does, it kind of traces uh, a bit of her rise and then obviously focusing on the events of, of last summer.
0: And you spoke to a lot of people who were, you know, coaches of her when she was a kid, you know, the Kappa and people like that who were around with her
1: for quite a long time. Yeah, I mean, there were an awful lot of people. And I'm, I'm aware that I haven't spoken to everybody, but... Um, Obviously, one of the themes of her career is that she has worked with an awful lot of people, and and uh, you know it would be a very long uh, book and a very arduous process to speak to everyone. But I've tried to speak to a sort of uh, cross section of people, and I just give a kind of fair kind of reflection on on uh, what her journey was, and also I hope it's of interest to people, anyone who's interested in the making of a tennis player, um, because there are so many different paths you can take and a lot of complications about it so I kind of hope in a way that that's uh, of interest as well
0: I'm curious for you just thinking back a uh, a year does it all feel like a bit of a blur the Roddy kind of thing just I was just thinking you know a year ago basically when the wild cards came out she was one of the last people to get a wild card in Wimbledon and this week and a year on basically there is a book out about her that you've written a whole book about this person who you probably really barely were aware of and you would talked to her before but you know not a big part of your consciousness. How, how do you just sort of step back and look at this phenomenon?
1: Yeah, well, I was just writing something this morning about Serena and I was reflecting actually in the piece that when Serena limped out of Wimbledon last year, I mean, so much has happened in tennis generally. I mean, mm-hmm. even aside from Emma. Um, and, and actually, like most people have never heard of Emma Raducanu. The last time Serena Williams uh, Hit, hit a shot in anger I mean I, I still I think even now I find it kind of hard to believe what happened with Emma in New York it was kind of it's certainly I remember at the time it took a lot of sinking in um, oh, it's just an extraordinary story isn't it um, yeah. and it, it is yeah it's a, it's a lot to conjure with um, but yeah definitely she I mean I think some people forget that when the initial batch of wild cards were announced um she was not on it. And then after she'd lost in the first round of the main WTA event at Nottingham, the LTA had put on an extra, hundred, I think it was 100,000 mm-hmm. a event. Um, all the media and everybody cleared off to London, to Queens. Um, and she won a couple of matches. Uh, she beat um, Hungarian... Babos. Timo um, Babos. And actually then... Put up, a, I think she beat Storm Sanders Australia as well, and then put up a good showing against Pironkova as well. Uh, but I think it was after the, um, after the second win that they actually bumped her up from qualifying to a, a main draw wild card. Yeah. Um, and it, who knows, maybe that sort of changed the course of history. Um, no, I mean, there's so many little things actually on that journey last summer that you could reflect on that sort of did change the course of history.
0: And so this book um, tells a lot of that story. Basically, it's, you know, very much, she's still only 19. It's still very much early phase of her, her life. But there is a lot in here just going through it of the sort of how many things had to go right and how you're reading it, you know, and well into the books sort were of before you we get to summer 2021 chronologically in the book, she's really nowhere near Someone who'd be getting a book written about them, honestly. She's still outside the top three hundred. Her junior results had not been particularly outstanding. I mean, she made a couple of grand slam quarterfinals, I think, is where she topped out. Yeah. Um, but nothing, nothing beyond that. And um, yeah, it's just a lot came came very quickly. So I guess when she, just sort of as a reporter, I'm curious. Like, so last year she sort of makes a name for herself really by reaching the fourth round of Wimbledon uh, main draw. When she beats uh, Von Joshua in the second round, and then Kerstea in the third round, I forget who she played first round. Uh, uh, Diachenko? Diachenko first yeah. round, right? This was an odd tournament, uh, you know. Obviously, cause it was still pandemic protocols and still in the bubble, and so didn't still have full access, to, you know, her team or her parents the way you might normally do it. So, and I was writing about her actually as well uh, this tournament last year for the Times. So, I guess what just as a reporter who suddenly has this new, you know quantity on their hands basically with Raducanu and all the excitement she's generating how much do you feel like you are sort of playing catch up and this goes I can say on until the present at some level maybe to try to get a get a handle on her as someone you're covering compared to let's say like Andy Murray who obviously you've known for decades now.
1: Yeah I mean bear in mind that I think sort of those of us who'd like to think we're sort of plugged into the British game and that's a very small number of reporters in yeah. reality um, I think people are aware that she had you know, a major amount of talent. I mean, certainly, as I've mentioned in the book, a couple of coaches and agents had, had sort of spoken very glowingly uh, about her. So it wasn't, it wasn't like a total shock, but obviously nobody could have seen it snowballing as fast as you can. It reminded me a little bit, actually, of, for us, when Kyle Edmund got to the semis of Australia, this is on a smaller scale, and actually, most people in the UK because Carl had never done particularly well at Wimbledon, and people see the game through the prism of Wimbledon largely yeah here anyway um, and and there was a kind of like a mini stampede of like who is Carl Edmund you know I remember at, at the time when he m- went on that run in Melbourne uh, and it was a li- it was a little bit like that suddenly everyone was trying to you know talk to people o- about her and find out about her background who are her parents and then. My colleagues in the news department, you know, they're very interested in the family and all the stuff that happens yeah. that you and I know happens at Wimbledon happened yeah. kind of in a rush of a few days, can, didn't
0: it? Can you define that for international audiences as a term that's used in British media, what news reporter means or news department in the Wimbledon
1: context? Um, no, I don't think, I, I don't
0: think would intuitively, Americans would intuitively yes, know what that means. Sure.
1: Well, it, it sort of stems from the fact that Wimbledon, uh, yeah, it's much more than a sports event in the UK. It's, I mean, it's got an element of kind of soap opera to it. There's a very, the interest in it is very widespread. That's partly because it's on the BBC 24-7 pretty much. Uh, that's a, a big key to it. Um, and therefore, you kind of get two types of reporters who cover it. And I'm very much uh, in the, the sports bracket, you know, and yeah. do it month in, month out. But then also, I have colleagues from the, the news department who are assigned just to cover Wimbledon. And, and you know, the stuff like with the Royals and yeah. all, all the kind of froth, if you like. Yeah, yeah froth. Uh, so
0: it's like you would think of, we, we would call more the tabloid kind of stuff, I guess, sort of more um, entertainment y. Yeah, yeah. In the that, US OBR. Yeah, of
1: that kind of dimension, yeah. you know, they're there to, to sort of cover that, that dimension of stuff. Um, I mean, it does, it really makes it a pretty unique sports event like that because obviously fundamentally it's a very serious sports event very serious athletes um contesting you know under huge pressure and desperate to win but then it's also got this show busy royals royal box you know um celebs it's, it's, got, it's got all that dimension to it as well so it is pretty uh unusual like that yeah. so
0: emma makes the fourth round here and then she is playing tomianovic in the second round and she has Second, sorry, second set of that match, uh, her fourth round match, she has uh, breathing difficulties as it was termed and sits down and then leaves the court and then doesn't come back. And this, whether it was still, I'm not sure if she's put a definitive name on it, they referred to it as breathing difficulties officially, did seem to have some elements of being some sort of a panic attack. Um, and she referred to sort of everything that was going on around the tournament, you know, the attention and the stress and stuff. Um, I guess a year on, and especially with what she's done since, like, how do you look back at that that moment, and I guess sort of the this is in the book, obviously, but the and the in the media firestorm that it created with you know people, sort of your usual suspects uh, weighing in.
1: Yeah, well, it was very. I mean, it was it was very dramatic at the time, and obviously, uh, you and I would know that this is not a particularly uncommon occurrence on the tour. You know, we've seen it happen elsewhere with uh, with different players. I mean, people could underestimate. I think the pressure of going out head to head combat for two hours in front of 10,000 people, it's, you know, you're under great exertion, and it's quite, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's not easy, but I mean, the TV, or well, the fact that it was kind of prime time as well, because it nah. actually happened about half past eight at night, I think it was around the course of the night, um, and the whole day, you know, had this big, big build-up, and she'd been held back in schedule, that was controversial, um, so the way it un- I mean it unfolded, and then, we didn't see, understandably, we didn't see Emma that night. And then I think she kind of resurfaced about four o'clock in the afternoon or something and did a Sue Barker interview. She did a Sue Barker think, BBC you know,
0: interview, yeah, sometime morning or midday. Uh, the back at
1: the, the hotel they were using yeah. in, in the city. I yeah. thought that
0: was one of the things they got wrong, honestly, last year, was that they didn't put out any sort of statement or anything about Emma. just sort yeah. of, sort of let the speculation of what had happened to her run wild. And if they just put out, you know, a, or even a you know, made-up quote from her or something, just saying, like... I know. I'm breathing difficulties, but I'm doing better now. Thank you for the support. Mm. Kind of something to address. Uh, I, I agree. Yeah. They,
1: they didn't. Uh, yeah. Not for the first time, they didn't communicate as well as they as they probably could have done. Um, and also, again, you have to put it in the context of you know, there's a huge audience tunes into Wimbledon that not doesn't follow tennis as closely. Uh, year round they probably think this is kind of something totally new um and then of course, if you also remember there was the controversy over McEnroe, uh his comments, and then <laughs> the way of the world people weighing on twitter yeah. and um it, it, it all it got a little bit out of hand I guess I thought actually she gave a very good interview the next day i mean she does i think she speaks very well actually for someone of her age, yeah actually. Does talk very well in interviews, actually. Yeah. Very accomplished.
0: I didn't think the macro comments were actually all that bad or all that inflammatory, but I think it just sort of spoke to, and I'm obviously working on a book about Naomi Osaka, so I see this happen with her all the time now, but it sort of spoke to how fraught or how loaded or how like brave people are on both sides to sort of you know, get uh, upset about things on the topic of, of you know young female athlete and anything, you know, mental health or whatever it may be. Um yeah, I, I sort of thought that his, his, he basically said, like, he just sort of said, oh, it looks like, you know, she was just having trouble with the pressure, basically. But she later said she
1: was. She, she pretty much endorsed his comments yeah. when, she, when she did finally kind of speak later the next afternoon, Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so Emma makes, you know, is up the top 150 at this point, and she goes to New York. She plays a couple of tournaments. She plays uh, San Jose. She plays Landisville. I've been to Landisville, actually. <laughs> um, uh, she plays the Chicago uh, 125 there, and then she goes to New York. Um and I actually watched her last qualifying match against Meyer Sharif. I was there that day, and and she won. She looked pretty good. I was like, oh, she looks you know pretty good. And it's not Someone on a draw. I thought she had a good shot against Brady when that was the draw, and the draw initially came out, and then Brady pulled out. Um, but I think you you cover well in the book that the inflection point for where or people sort of really took notice is when she beat Best Tormo in the third round of that tournament, uh, love and one or one and love, love and one. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess for you, just as sort of a tennis observer, like how much did that match change your perception of, of Emma?
1: Well, I think it was it was kind of one of those sharp intake of breaths mo- moment. Really, um, I mean, it was it was a I, I remember it well. I remember where I was sitting. I was my, one of my my freelance colleague uh, Steve Brenner, who's based in Miami, and he he'd come up to cover it. He's um, working for the Sun mainly, mm-hmm. um, and we were. We were seated there, and uh, we were just like jaws dropping. <laughs> I mean, it was. A, you, you went watching it. You would think, "Well, she's you know Serena's almost sort of bit of a David Ferrer type sort of player. Really makes you work. She won. I think she'd won twenty nine matches by that point mm. in the season. Good wins, beaten Barty at the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, really tough player to break down, and uh, Emma just smashed her. And I, I remember walking back to uh, the media and I'm walking past Tim Henman actually and him just sort of blowing his cheeks looking at me and shaking like wow what was that you know and he really he looked at it then and he thought blimey she really like she play, keeps playing like that who's going to beat her you know I mean I mean she should have double bageled her really yeah. I mean uh, it was an extraordinary performance and just driving winner after winner into the corners and at that point, you really thought, wow, this is quite serious. And this could get very interesting.
0: What was the sort of just from a, and I guess it's already starting her Wimbledon, but the sort of media interest in her as her march went on, as she gets to sort of walk through her draw, she beats Shelby Rogers again pretty easily. It's the thing that all her wins, all, almost all her wins were pretty easy. Rogers in the fourth round, Benchich in the quarterfinals, and Sakari in the semifinals. Just how, how were things ramping up just for on your end in terms of well, I remember, editorial interest in, in um, this person?
1: Yeah, in terms of the media, like, yeah, like the, yeah. the the office back at home and right. stuff like that. Well, I remember, I remember the Saturday night after that series, we were uh, having dinner in a, a midtown Irish bar. Or I don't know, but a few we were watching t- the tennis and seeing Rogers beat Barty, and then you kind of when that happened, it was pretty close match, as I yeah, a third side tiebreak, I think. Um, yeah. And then you suddenly kind of see a path. I mean, No disrespect to Shelby Rogers, but she's not Ash Barty, you know. No. Um, and you suddenly, you're kind of seeing a path. And uh, it, it, I mean, it, it, it wasn't a sort of sudden, oh, let's get interested in Emma Raducanu. It just gradually built. And really by, by the second week, uh, and then Virginia Wade turns up. Um, uh, and, it, and it's just starting now to get, to get real momentum. Uh, and it just grew and grew and by, obviously by the, the second weekend, I mean, I mean, I, I just fielding calls from every department of the paper. Um, one of my colleagues, I think kind of, he was kind of having to ration the amount of calls he was getting from other departments because uh, it was, you know, because you're, you're on a tough deadline in New York anyway. So you kind of have to ration your time a bit. Uh, and it really, the, the crescendo was extraordinary by uh, by the Thursday and Friday. And I think she beat um, the semis when she beat Sakari. I mean, that happened very late at night, yeah. sort of in the middle of the night, UK time. And uh, I remember Stuart Fraser and I the Times, and we got the last bus out of Flushing Meadows at about 2.30 or something. I mean, it was the middle of the night, pretty mm-hmm. much, and stopping off at the deli. You know, just just trying to sort of unwind a bit and have a cup of tea or something stronger, you know, so just sitting on the corner there and, and uh, just thinking, right, we've got to go again in about four, three hours, you yeah. know, this is all starting again, you know, because you knew, like, the, the, the levels of interest on the Friday would be off the charts.
0: What do you think it was about Radicando that
1: made the interest in her that huge? Well, I think the way she carried herself and... You know, there's something new and fresh about her. And, um, yeah, I think she presented herself very well. She's obviously amazingly talented. And, yeah, it was a good... There was a sense, I felt, at that tournament, I don't know if you thought this as well, that obviously tennis have been very badly affected by the pandemic. No. Tennis is a trivial thing in, in, in the world generally. But, you know, there, I think people were also particularly on the lookout for kind of really uplifting good news, happy, stirring stories. Yeah. Uh, and this, yeah, it was fantastic, wasn't it? I think pe- people enjoyed it all. I mean, they've enjoyed it in normal times anyway, but I just think at that particular juncture of history, it kind of hit a sweet spot as well. Yeah, I, I
0: agree. And it, it came at, and you cover this in the book, but it was the, you know, a year on from the US Open the year before that, which had been no fans at all. This one was the first Grand Slam out with full attendance all the way through. Um, And having these two young people in the final, Fernandez also carrying Mm. her own sort of Cinderella story on the other half of the draw. So so Emma wins, and you obviously cover all the sort of, you know, in and out and the sort of, well, not quite ball by ball, but, you know, the match recaps in the book. I don't want to rehash too much of that. But just looking back a year on, does Raducanu's win make more sense to you or does it still feel just as improbable? This this person who, again, is barely on the radar at all a couple months before the U.S. Open. Uh, goes through qualifying, winning ten matches in a row without dropping a set. First ever qualifier to make a slam final, then to win one. Does it? Does it still add up, or does it? And even with you can even have with with, with with what has come after it with for her results mm. wise, like does the U.S. Open still compute, or does it still?
1: Uh, I mean, you can it just see seems like what a magical it thing, yeah. And you know, it was this this great star alignment um, of. Every, everything falling into place. I mean, some people say it was a fluke. I, I don't think was, you can't fluke a grand slam. No, Sam, definitely you know, not. That's just, you know, and it's not really a fairy tale because it's a highly professionalized sport. Again, sort of fairy tales don't really happen. But I mean, it, it, there's no doubt. I mean, the stars, like the conditions were great for her there. The the second week opponents up to Fernandez didn't play very well. It was kind of, they were all kind of strange matches. And they said that actually, yeah. and uh, when you, I mean, they were very honest. Um, Shelby was very honest about it, and Sakari was was very honest. And was a surprising. I mean, Benchich got off to a flying start in that match, and you know he, he was sitting there thinking, okay, amazing effort to get to the courses, backing up Wimbledon fourth round, and this if it's all over, then yeah. Benchich just won a, little amazing, a little bit
0: gold, yeah, just before that. Yeah, yeah,
1: and then that match just turned around, and she. Radicala just went on these rolls, you know, where she, she was just for half an hour, she'd be unplayable. And she turned that match around. And I, I was actually quite confident, by the time the final came around, I was pretty confident she was going to win, actually. I mm. thought her game matched up pretty well. And she just was handling it like a veteran. I mean, <laughs> like in the press conferences, it looked like she had been doing it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think after that Cerebras tour, that was the first time. She'd ever done a press conference in a room of journalists. I mean, as we recall, the that the big press conference room at Flushing Meadow, it wasn't very really full because there was, weren't many journalists there. But right. I think that was the first time ever that she'd been in a room full of journalists. Yeah. Uh, and it was just like a duck to water, wasn't it?
0: Yeah. No, definitely. She she's did it all well. she, she wins the US Open and then... Um, something that's coming kind of the theme, but we can sort of skip ahead a bit to you know past the bounds of just the book. the book basically chronologically goes through the Australian Open this year. Um, but so she wins the US Open and then parts with her coach, which got a lot of raised a lot of eyebrows or just confused people honestly that you just won this you know play this perfect tournament essentially winning ten matches by dropping a set and no tie breaks even and then just split up with your your coach and you you know talk about this in the book obviously and ruminate on it and then since then she's hired and. With Torben Belts, and now she's been without a coach in the for, sort of formal, official coaching position for a while. And in the book, you talk about her early rise and you know lay out how you know her father had this philosophy of wanting lots of different coaches and lots of different voices to each contribute a bit. Um, do you, what, what do you think of this of this philosophy um, and, and decision to, to part with a coach after US Open, particularly um, with some some hindsight now?
1: Well, I, th- I think it it was a it was a very strange decision. I don't hasn't really been bought out as a great decision, has it, uh, with the, the benefit of hindsight. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's important to make clear that it wasn't like Andrew Richardson was sacked. It was just that that agreement had come to an end and it wasn't renewed, which is, which is a different kind no. of thing, I guess. Um, but he was up, for, he I, was up I, for staying. Yeah, he would have done it on kind of more permanent terms, for sure, um, because there were a lot of rumors going around that he didn't want to do it, which, which is not correct. Um, but I felt at the time um, and I think probably a lot of onlookers would have thought well you really want to stabilise the situation for six months because there's going to be a lot of noise in the background and you want to try and minimise that noise I do think in tennis though having said that you it's quite difficult to second guess on coaching stuff because it is an individual sport it's not like being a soccer manager or no. you know running a team and if for whatever reason stuff isn't working, and often it's reasons we don't know. I don't. I'm not saying there was a reason it wasn't working. I'm certainly not aware of that. Uh, it is. It can be quite difficult to second guess. Um, and clearly, the coaching thing has been an issue. I mean, my actual feeling is what surprises me more uh, in terms of going forward from the U.S. Open is that um, she hasn't put a kind of physio, physical trainer set up. That that to me actually is, because coaching is different strokes for different folks and yeah, there are players who, they like to stick with the same person for 10 years or there's other people don't even like a coach at all or just want some part of, no. whatever. A non-negotiable is that your body and everything has to stand up and actually quite rightly admitted and totally understandable. You know, her body, because she hadn't perhaps had the hot house training through her teen years as some of her contemporaries, that was always going to be a major thing to kind of get up to speed with. Uh, and So that that does surprise me particularly that that hasn't been put in place. So, so what is her physio Does she have someone full time with her either or, or no? Well, not, not, not really, no. I mean, yeah. it's kind of slightly unfathomable. Um, yeah. I mean, she does have people working with her, but... Um, you know, I would have thought that would have been a, you know, again, I'm not her and it can be a very idiosyncratic thing, but you kind of would have thought that would have been a, a good move. And I think it probably will happen. Uh, it's just perhaps taking longer to happen than yeah. you might have expected.
0: So after everything that, you know, makes her sort of the subject of this book and winning, being this sort of, mirac- you know, shocking, sensational winner in New York and becoming a superstar here... Her, I guess, it, where, do, where do you think it's sort of fair to set expectations for her for for this year? I mean, she's, right now, I looked at the race ranking. She's ranked, like, 60-something in the race, which is really good for someone who was in the three hundred as last year. Mm. Not particularly good for someone who won the U.S. Open last year. Um, But she's still only 19, so she's still doing well by her, you know, standards of people her age. Uh, Cocoa Golf, I guess, is now ahead of her this year. Um, But, and who's only 18. But, like, is it people even going to Wimbledon, let's say, like, what are fair expectations for Emerita Khanu short term, longer term after the incredibly high, you know, high note she achieved uh, so early in her career? And how, did, and how does she sort of manage those expectations and how should the public manage those expectations?
1: Well, it's it's quite a complicated thing to explain. I find myself being asked this kind of just by friends and people outside. Yeah the professional or the sport, you know, and try... And I think quite a useful thing is to imagine... Let's just imagine that she'd done perhaps what we might have expected her to do at the year or so, which, you know, qualify, maybe win a round, two round. I mean, that's kind of what should have happened in a way. And as you rightly say, you know, if if you if that had happened, like, no one now would be having this sort of debate about, no. what you know, expectations... Uh, I, I actually thought she did pretty well on the clay. I mean, if you'd said to me uh, at the start of April, you know, by the end of the French, you know, I, th- I think her record on clay was seven five. I, I think that's pretty for someone who's never played on clay before, and also playing sort of under the pressures she's under. I thought it's pretty respectable actually. Um, so uh, you have to kind of try and explain that context. Uh, I think uh, you know, like. Reporting or writing about it, trying to, trying to be cognizant of that. That yeah, uh, you know, it, it's Rome wasn't built in a day, but in fact, but it was built in a day almost. You know, in her this exceptional case. I mean, she could have lost in the second round of qualifying at the U.S. Open. I mean, yeah. it's amazing that she. To think that actually, that I think the biggest danger she was in, was, I think she was five three down to Miriam Bogdanzy, Bogdanzy yeah. of Georgia, yeah. uh, and I, I spoke to Ian Bates for the book. And I think it was kind of agreed that she'd she'd lost that second set. You know, she's quite still quite tired from Chicago and stuff. That might well have been it. You know, yeah. again, the course of history might have been changed. So I, th- I think people's expectations should be. Should be tempered. I actually think if she's fit for Wimbledon, which is a massive if, and she's short of matches, I mean, I still think she'd play really well on the grass. Uh, I think it'd be a great surface for her, and I think it will probably in future happen for her. And I I also sense that she quite likes the big occasion. Well, we've seen that, but I mean, you know, I do I do think she like send a court behind her, which she's never experienced. Uh, yeah, there are some players can react different ways to that. But I, I, I think she'll react pretty well to that. Sadly I fear that this year that's just the preparation and stuff is even if she does play, it's not gonna be an, under ideal circumstances. So particularly Wimbledon this year, pretty much anything's a bonus.
0: do you think that, that anything is a bonus attitude will be something that the, the public will under or the media, you know, more largely, more broadly in this in this country will abide by? Or do you think, I mean, after, again, setting the bar with winning a Grand Slam last year, just, like, anything short of that, to some people, could be seen as a disappointment. Unfairly, I think. But just sort of, yeah, for her managed expectations. And again, you know, she's getting all this criticism, I think, of doing lots of endorsements and stuff, which I think is kind of ridiculous that she's getting, I mean, who would say no to those sort of things, basically, is my thought on him. But, yeah, I just sort of, I don't know, are you at all... Worried for
1: her, I guess, a little, a little bit I, yeah. because I think people's expectations will be very high. And you know, again, it comes back to this thing of Wimbledon. I mean, the very large majority of people tuning in for Wimbledon are not, you know, glued to the tennis the rest of the year, yeah. and you know, their understanding of it uh, be sort of relatively shallow, why not? They've got lives to lead, you know, but um. Uh, so I, I do fear that some people will have very high expectations for it, and they are going to be quite difficult to uh, fulfil. And obviously, you know, the, the subject of the endorsements comes up a lot. Um, I, I mean, I'm I'm like you in that in any sport, not just tennis, but you know, I wouldn't begrudge athletes. It's a precarious career, and it's a bit dog eat dog, and you, you've got to make hay while the sun shines. You know, I, I mean. Having said that, I do think they've, they've not sort of underdone that side of things for sure. Um, but I, I think it's difficult to criticize athletes for sort of trying to maximize their worth. Uh, um, but the optics, the optics are difficult on that.
0: You just, I, I the make Cable to Sunshine, I agree with that. You just never know how short her earning window will be for, you know, honestly, her life. Not to be, that's not pessimistic. It's just sort of pragmatic on some level. If there's, you know, this, if the market is currently right for her, um, and it can set her up, you know, for the rest of her life financially. You know, would be some on some level, especially at the beginning when the offers are first rolling in. On some level, irresponsible not to take these things. Mm. Um,
1: I think we also yeah. we haven't we, we 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 aren't going to see how that plays out for a while because these obviously these contracts they need servicing and you know certain amount of time given over and you know how she how we we did, kind of at the early stages of that. So or she's at the early stages of that. So. I think we have to kind of slightly wait and see how that plays out in effects because I think there are people who kind of cope with all that stuff. But I mean Andy Murray was never very... I've never had the sense, for example, with Andy that he, he's particularly enjoyed that, that type of stuff right. um, hugely. It's kind of... Some people actually, I think, some players really quite enjoy it, yeah. um, sort of embrace it almost. Uh, and I think we have to, yet to see how things fall with that.
0: Just on Andy, you've obviously covered Andy as sort of the main character of British tennis this century. Uh, how different is the Murray beat versus the Roddickano beat at this point? Just as people, what people are interested in, how how they get covered, is it at all comparable
1: experience, or um, is it totally different? Well, the issue with it, at the start, I mean, the journey was the start of the journey was different because Andy was not universally popular, whereas I think Emma, Emma was starting from a place where a lot of people are hmm. very well disposed towards her and the historic reasons why i mean there was a interview that kind of got misinterpreted oh, the English yeah. soccer thing yeah and uh, um that was that was kind of unfortunate um and it's funny how things like that can stick stick with you um and there was there was this perception and probably, probably still is actually amongst some people that he doesn't like English. I mean, it's nonsense, but, um, you know, possibly didn't help himself in some instances as well. So it's quite... he was a bit more of a controversial... I mean, I think now there's a lot of love for Andy. Um, this kind of happens, doesn't it, towards the end of careers. You yeah. Know, people like... I remember Lendl towards the end of his career, you know, people started liking him and <laughs> uh, stuff like that. But, I mean, Andy, Andy's a bit different to that. But uh, I think Emma's starting from a pretty positive place because she did this utterly extraordinary thing um but but clearly there's huge widespread interest and not just among the kind of sports posse but a much wider segment of the population
0: yeah um what, what do you think comes next for emma just in her sort of career i mean what should come next and i guess what does like terms of i think we've seen her have a lot of physical problems basically the last few months especially a lot of medical timeouts her matches some retirements um, her Wimbledon is a bit in jeopardy after the issues she suffered in Nottingham this year what, what are the priorities for her and I guess what do you do you think she can let's say like win another slam is that a fair thing to think is possible for her
1: well I think there's a lot of different potential outcomes I think there are some dangers it'd be a little bit of a mugs game predicting it I mean I, I do think tennis wise I think she's very gifted I think she's really smart um Works a lot of things out for herself, and she's kind of like her, I think, you know, her dad has always put a big uh, emphasis on that. That you're kind of out there on your own, no. and and without. I mean, there's definitely physically. I don't see any reason why she won't win another slam. Somebody. What I guess if I was thinking, what might happen is that life will become easier for her after the U.S. Open. No. You know, and then that's kind of. I remember Sampras, I think I'm right in saying, described it as having a monkey on his back when he'd first won it. Won it very young at nineteen. Yeah, um, and I, there is probably an element of that, and I think life will get a bit easier for her once, and then we'll probably see her. Hopefully, building in a kind of steady way, in a bit like the way Gough looks like she's been building. Um, This year,
0: there are several of the sort of that's if it goes well. Yeah, Yeah. there are several of the sort of again on the if it goes well side. There are several of the sort of greatest of all time players who had a one breakthrough slam win. Samvers is a good example of it. I think he won in 90, and then he didn't win his next one until 93. I believe his first Wimbledon, maybe Serena Mm -hmm. won her first 99 US Open, then she didn't win another slam until 2002. French, Mm -hmm. um, Djokovic won 2008 in, in Australia, didn't win another one for three years. And then, start, then once you sort of get the second one going, then the things start rolling. And again, I'm not saying that she's going to be in that sort of category of you know Sampras, Serena, uh, Novak, you know, 14 minimum Grand Slam titles in that tri- triad. But uh, yeah, but I think there is time to sort of settle in. And- yeah, I
1: mean the general the context of the women's game, obviously the wider context, is that there appear to be. Uh, it looks like there's a pretty good crop of talent that not obviously context the obvious one, but I mean I think this. Uh, Kin, Kin, Sheng looks pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Fernandez, there, there's some good players. The players she played around. at
0: the uh, French Open, Noskova. Yeah. That was a really she, good she,
1: match. She looked, she looked very promising. There's always good players around. Yeah. But as we know, kind of women's tennis has become pretty open. So I, I don't see her, you know, doing a Djokovic or Federer winning, you know, 12 15 18 yeah. or something like that but i don't think there's any reason i think she'll do well at, i think she should do well at wimbledon in the future i don't think she'll do that well this year but yeah. uh you know quicker conditions uh, but that's if stuff goes right and you know stuff off the court's okay and um i mean there's, there's a world of possibilities
0: yeah a yeah. lot us, us to go right to win a great slam and it all did for her last year thank you very much mike just on sort of last general point where I would say, a couple of days after Wimbledon qualifying starting now, what as you're you know cranking out Wimbledon preview content, what are the sort of biggest storylines for you for for the championships coming up?
1: Well, I was talking with colleagues the other day. I seem to have done a lot of writing about who's playing and who's not playing, and there's mm-hmm. been an awful lot of that in the last. Uh, so, I mean, there'll be a lot of interest in Serena and in, in East, even though she's just playing doubles. Um, I think there's going to be a bit of a will she, won't she? scenario developing around Emma Um, you know Djokovic and Nadal are coming into town and playing this exhibition at at the Hurlingham I mean Djokovic will I think when he kind of surfaces I think there'll be quite a lot of interest uh, in him I mean there's obviously the the kind of ranking points Russian type thing I guess will be rumbling in the background Uh, Andy as well I mean I, I yeah I'm sorry that Andy has had this issue because I, I quietly thought he... Uh, I think he's going to be okay from what I understand, as we speak. I sort <laughs> of hear reasonably optimistic noises about him, but I really thought with the right draw, Andy could could really you know, do something quite serious at Wimbledon this year. But I don't know exactly how no. good or how bad this, yeah. you this got stomach a, thing is. Great
0: start with the Shukart final, obviously, and then, yeah, Yeah, the average, I mean,
1: yeah. He, it was really... Building up nicely, I think he'd had a seed if he'd had a seeding and being 100 percent healthy and prepared. Who who would want to play him uh, on grass at Wimbledon? You know, so that's going to be interesting to see. And everything else, yeah. you know. It's
0: I sort of you mentioned this was in the context of Emma with the Kalmyanovich match, but the sort of prime timeification of Wimbledon. You know, the schedule sort of keeps pushing later. We got this email saying that center court matches still won't start till 1:30 p.m., which is pretty late for a tournament that theoretically doesn't have night sessions and wants to play usually two best of five matches on there and one mm. women's mix, some mix, but often that. Um, do you see, French Open just had their night sessions uh, for the first time, which were not very popular, but I'm sure lucrative. Do you think Wimbledon is going to continue to push more towards trying to get closer to a, a primetime situation as much as they can, or do you think they will have uh, reluctance still?
1: Well, I think I think that's already been quite an evolution. I, I I'll be surprised if you do hear, you know, people say, oh, "Will will they actually have some kind of separate night or formal night session?" I, I if that happens, I think that's quite a long way in the future. I I, I certainly don't think that's in any way uh, imminent. But uh, yeah, I mean, they are always looking to put on these these prime time matches at six no. o'clock. Uh, they've got the facility now. To go later and you know it, it, the, it was a completely sub- subject in itself you know the relationship between the bbc and wimbledon is an, is an interesting one mm-hmm. should we say yeah. um wimbledon invest bbc invest a lot of money in wimbledon and you know they want bang for their buck um and that that's driving quite a lot of it i think and, and just you know wimbledon is much more commercial than it used to be in less laid back about you know how it promotes itself and things like that so it's all moving towards that kind of prime timeification if that's what the phrase yeah. you use yeah i mean yeah we're definitely going to see more late matches and
0: even just this year we have the no middle sunday for the first time it, yeah a you know, plan advance uh, which is a different issue but it does speak to getting more prime hours available for us people on a weekend you know which is i think it's positive for fans for sure no, obviously, for those of us working, it means no days off. As I'm sure to be honest,
1: would... I, from a professional um, point of view, it really doesn't particularly bother me because I would hmm. find often that fallow day was often quite—you know—kind of you're already feeling the pace a bit by that point, and uh, you're kind of having to come up with stuff and preview things and whatever. So, I actually don't think for us it, it's it's really no. it's not really a bad thing particularly. Uh, and, and I mean, you know, it was a it was a lovely old tradition. It was there was a sort of magic around Wimbledon that day that yeah. was just calm. And but I think in a few years' time, people look back and think, you know, wow, that was quaint. Uh, know, it was it was anachronistic
0: in a very Wimbledon yeah. kind of way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think and means also no more manic Monday. So manic Monday, just that there were a lot of good matches you couldn't watch because they're on the same time as other matches. So yeah, spreading them out a bit, I think, is good for good for fans and yeah. TV and stuff. So. Anyway, Mike, thank you very much. Looking forward to covering the world cover. with you and congrats on the, uh, on the book. Hope people can you. give
1: it a read. Thank you. Cheers. You went through quite a fast at play this week. You'd even booked your flat back home. You didn't drop a set, that's one way to ensure your first Grand Slam.